Welcome to the Red Door Church Sermon Podcast. Red Door Church is a church seeking to transform the city of Pretoria by the power of the gospel. We are distinctly mission-minded, community-cultivating, and city-loving. Please enjoy this week's sermon, and don't forget to follow and continue the conversation by sharing with those around you. Good morning, but I think I've greeted everyone in here, except you, maybe Nicole. Oh, welcome. The Saudis are somewhere. Oh, there is Selen. Happy birthday, Selen. Congrats. 31st birthday, am I right? That's a big one. You and Christy with the ping pong dress up, you certainly look festive this morning. Um, guys, what a great morning to join together. And I don't know why, but I get more excited on mornings like this when it's fewer people and it's almost like the event of church is taken away and we're under no illusions that this is simply the family of God gathering together. And so God wants us all here this morning and he wants us to pay attention and listen to his word. And so I pray that this would be good. This isn't supposed to come off. I'm just going to put it down here for now. <laughs> That's why I'm not allowed to touch this stuff on, on stage. Um, but it is special on, on so many different ways. It's Connor's last morning with us this morning. It's emotional and good and sweet and bitter and everything at the same time. And we're starting our Advent series um, titled, O Come All You Unfaithful. And so I'm really excited for the series. I'm excited for all of us as we listen to this and for everyone that may be listening to this afterwards. And so I'm going to pray for us that our hearts wouldn't get distracted by what should or shouldn't be happening this morning. What we are seeing happening in our midst is church, and the Spirit always works in His church. So let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this morning. Uh, we thank you for the life of Selen. We pray that you would bless her in this time, and we thank you that we can celebrate her birthday today. We thank you for Connor. Thank you for Megan and Jason as they've been serving with us, Father. Thank you for everyone here this morning that we can come together not to simply stage an event or say we did church and we had church and we can go home fulfilled, but coming together and saying this is what we want to do. We want to come as a collective and share with one another and sit under the authority of the word and see how you want to guide us and lead us and teach us. Father, even by doing this, we want to communicate with our hearts that we don't always believe that you're enough. We don't believe that you're the most valuable thing that we need in our lives. But by simply coming this morning, we are asking, help us, remind us, even though I don't believe it with my heart, I want to walk or help me in my unbelief. Help us this morning in our failings and our unbelief, Father, even by the mere fact of showing up this morning, we want to communicate that we need you. We want you to be our first love. We want you to be the bread of life this morning. And we know that you do this not as a reward or as a result of our works, but simply because of the grace of Christ. Amen. I don't know about you guys, and, and Connor, it'd be great to chat about what's the mood normally like in December, in the States, and other places in the world. But as you guys can pick up by just looking around you, that South Africa goes into a different gear into December. 
It's really just that relaxed time of year where it's a festive atmosphere. We're all kind of in a good mood because you're either finishing off with work or everyone's going to take an extended break over Christmas period. This is our summer holiday. We don't have it in June, July. And so things are just more rustic. It's just a little bit laid back and slower pace than it is at other times of the year. And as a result, people are generally more optimistic. It's that time of year where we don't just celebrate and have time with the family, but it's also a time where we kind of take stock of the year and what's happened. You kind of reflect on the year. How's your year gone? How's your year been? What are some of the things that you believe you've accomplished? Some of the things that you recognize that you failed in? And then other things that you believe that you want to improve in for next year. It's a joyous time where we sing songs like, Oh, come all you faithful. Let me kind of just read the words of the first paragraph of that song again that we sing every year. We sing, Oh, come all you faithful, joyful and triumphant. Oh, come you, oh, come to Bethlehem and come and behold him born the king of angels. And it's got a nice ring to it. We, we, we see that not only Christians sing this song, but actually everyone sings it. And it plays in stores and everywhere. And it's just this joyous, it's got bells in the background. Every time that my kids hear a song with bells in the background, they're like, that's a Christmas song. Because they just associate bells and joyous things with Christmas. However, if you maybe take a moment and you look at the words, especially the first line of the song, I find it extremely troublesome. Oh, come you faithful, come you triumphant, and come you joyful to come and behold the king. And when I read that, when I think about this, it's a difficult song for me to deal with. Because in all honesty, every year at this time, even though it's an optimistic time of the year, when I take stock of the year and when I reflect on my own life, that's not my experience. I don't feel like the faithful I don't feel like the joyous, and I don't feel like triumphant. I don't feel like I've slain my demons. I don't feel like I've at long last achieved all the goals that I want to achieve. And more than that even, I don't feel worthy and faithful to come and behold the king. In fact, I feel like I'm outside of the door, and I'm not worthy to come inside, even inside of the stall, to come and watch Jesus the baby in the manger. So what I normally do this time of the year, rather than just going into a bit of a despair, I feel guilty, but we're close to New Year's. So normally what I do around Christmas time, I hear the Christmas message, I hear that what we're supposed to be doing, I hear that we should be excited about Jesus, and I'm like, okay, next year's going to be my time. And so I kind of ramp it up. I'm like, still holiday time, and so I don't really focus on my relationship with Christ because I'm on holiday mode. But when it comes to Christmas and New Year, then I start making the New Year's resolutions. I'm like, but next year is going to be my time. I'm, I'm going to do everything that I was supposed to be doing. I'm going to be disciplined. I'm going to be godly. I'm going to be loving. I'm at long last going to be the man that I need to be, the husband that my wife deserves, the father, the, the worker the person in its community that's not going to have a short fuse, that's not going to overeat this Christmas. I'm finally going to train. I'm going to do everything that I want to do. I too will bring gifts to the king. I will bring my frankincense, my gold and my myrrh so that if I have a gift at the door, 
they will allow me in, and then I can also behold the king. And not before then. Before then, I'm not allowed to come and view the Christ. But every year, I get disappointed. Every year, it's a failure. Every year, I once again find myself not inside the room, but outside, hearing about the message, why it is joy to the world that the Lord has come, why it is peace for all of mankind, and I hear the news, and yet I don't experience it myself, and I don't taste it. And so two things normally happen. Either we become numb to, Chris, to Christmas and to the gospel message because it just it doesn't do anything for you. It, it just leaves you at that space every year where you fall short and you feel like you can't really tap into the adjectives that they add to the gospel message. It doesn't really feel like good news to you. It doesn't really give you the peace that transcends all understanding. It doesn't really take away your anxiety. In fact, the more you come close to the message of the gospel, it actually adds to the stress in your life. And so we either become numb to it, saying the right words and singing the songs, or we become disillusioned with this. I think what I want us and what I want for myself this Christmas is to once again rediscover why Christmas season, why the message of Christ becoming incarnate is really good news, not just for the nations, but for you here this morning. Why, when you think about Jesus' birth, will this truly be joyful? That when you think about it, there's this joy that just comes like a fountain bubbling up in the inside of you. That's my wish and my prayer for us. That's my prayer for myself so that we can discover with the wise men and the shepherds that we are allowed in the room and we are allowed to come and view the king. And so for the next couple of weeks, these are the questions that I want us to wrestle with. I want us to wrestle with how should we come if we want to come and view the Christ? Who or when why should we come to come and view the Christ? And when should we come and view the Christ for the next couple of weeks? But today's question, how should we come to view the Christ? In what way are we to posture our hearts, our hearts that we not only feel allowed inside the building, but that we can actually receive the good news of Jesus born in a manger? And so... For that, we're going to go to today's text. It doesn't seem like it's got anything to do with Jesus' birth, but uh, stick with me. I'm going to give a little bit of context uh, just for our passage in the gospel according to Matthew. We're actually only going to do from verses 13 to 26 just to condense the passage a little bit. So stick with me. Uh, a little bit of context just on the social structures of the day back in the day. Um, social capital in any context, is actually more important than we think. Uh, it opens a lot of doors for people, and it helps you to gain access and to gain more opportunities. Why do you guys think people play golf? Golf is not that interesting or fun. People play golf because they want to network. That's actually where deals are made. And so we all recognize that there's a time, a type of social capital that's even prevalent in our society. Even if you look at the political parties right now, going up to the December conference, it's not about who's the best leader, but who's got the best social connections. 
Sometimes unfortunate, but that's the world that we live in. This was exactly true back in the day as well in Jewish culture. What happened in ancient Jewish society is that the social hierarchy played a massive role in your ability to network with the people around you. And so two things played a role. One is that you had an inherent social standing. Whether you were born male or female, slave or free, that, that immediately put you on the ladder of the social hierarchy. And so you were already at a disadvantage if you weren't born in a particular race or gender. However, the other thing that also played a massive role, especially in that society, was the way that you measured up to the law of Moses and the Torah. So what they had is, okay, you had your social standing and your social capital, and then they played the game, who can be the best at Sunday school? And the people that excelled the best at Sunday school were actually given a higher rank than the other people around them. If, if you were a pious Jew, meaning that you followed the cultures and customs as set out, not only in the law of Moses, but the other laws that they added to that and that the Pharisees added to that, the more you were able in a strict fashion to follow that law, it gave you greater, higher social standing. And what happened in that society is that the way that we measured whatever you can contribute to society and what you can contribute to a conversation and how clever you were and how pious you were, then you were put at a high social level. And people with high social capital, everyone wanted to mingle with them. Because if you were seen with these cats at the top of the table, immediately you would get some of their clout. You would get some of their likes and some of their followers. And so normally what would happen is people with a high standing only mixed with people with high standing and those medium and lower. And so you always try to move upwards, always try to gain another level within the social standings. This just didn't have benefits for you within the social culture, but definitely financially, uh, politically, and socially as well. This dictated every facet of your life. People that weren't seen as, seen as desirable were slaves, women were of a low standing, and definitely the lowest probably on the social ladder back in the day, and that's very different from today, were children. <laughs> children, <laughs> they were nothing. It's not just that they should have been seen and not heard. No, they don't, people didn't want to see them either. And the whole fact behind it is because children couldn't give you anything. There's nothing that they at that stage can contribute to society. They can't even obey the law at that stage. There's nothing that they can do. And so to avoid seeming like someone that isn't really important, people didn't mingle with children. Children were kept separate, even from their parents for long times. Especially in any public sphere, people made sure not to mingle with children so that you don't almost get associated with nonsensical things. Children were definitely at the bottom of the food chain. And that brings us to today's two encounters. We're going to see two encounters and two reactions of how Jesus reacts to two different peoples. And that's going to show us not just the way that Jesus views people, but more importantly, the way that we should view ourselves and how we should approach the throne of grace. And so the first encounter, very well known is that some children were brought to 
Jesus. The parents or the mothers obviously brought the children to Jesus because they wanted Jesus to lay hands on them and bless them. Um, but we see that the disciples didn't just hinder them. The disciples rebuked the parents and told them that they can't bring the children to Jesus. Now, we, we're not told expressly why this is. We know that socially it wasn't accepted. It might have been because the disciples thought, hey, Jesus needed some time alone. He needed to rest. Um, the kids are going to be a, a nuisance. You know, we don't have time for whatever is happening right now. But Jesus saw what was happening. And he intervened, and this is the words that Jesus said. Now, this is unbelievable. Jesus said, let the little children, so it's not even kids that can really have a coherent conversation, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. This is such a bold statement within that context. I don't think we really understand the gravitas of this statement. Jesus is saying, these kids, they have unlocked the secret to enter into the kingdom of heaven. The whole thing around which a pious Jew's life revolves around to gain certainty so that they can gain access and entry into the kingdom of heaven. These kids have already discovered it. What have they done? They're nothing. They provide nothing. How can the kingdom of heaven belong to them? We see a lot of the times people read the story on their own and they come to their own conclusions. Oh, it's because you need to have childlike faith. Uh, you need to be innocent like kids. Kids aren't innocent if you have any kids. Um, but that's not what Jesus is getting at. To fully understand Jesus' statement and the encounter, we need to go to the story that happens right after that. Verse 15, this is an important one. Verse 15 reads, And he laid hands on them, the kids, and they went away. Verse 16, And behold, a man came up saying, so immediately after that, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Now, notice that this man wasn't stopped by the disciples. So it wasn't that Jesus was resting or anything, but the man, we'll learn a little bit more about him in a moment, the disciples didn't stop him because obviously they recognized that whatever, whoever this man is, he's got enough clout, he's got enough social capital that he's allowed to immediately come to Jesus and ask him whatever he wants. They've already made a snap judgment about who this man is and what he is entitled to. And then this guy comes and he reveals a lot about himself with his first question. What should you do to inherit the kingdom of heaven? Again, from the outset, it looks like an innocent question. But what this guy is doing, and we'll see it in a moment, is he is trying to do a what we call a subtle brag or a gracious brag. Have you guys done that before? You, you set up questions to which you know the answer to so that people might respond with a question to you so that you can answer that question and actually seem more clever or that you can put yourself in a better light. But you can't just come out and say that thing. If you want to tell everyone that actually yesterday you ran a marathon, you can't just open a conversation with that because that would seem vainglorious. And so maybe you would start the conversation, when last have you guys run a marathon? Has anyone run a marathon? 
No, why, why have you? Well, no, now that you ask. Maybe, maybe you'll ask a question. Have any of you traveled abroad? What's been your favorite international destination? Oh, no, I haven't traveled. Have you? And then you get to share whatever you want to share. We, we have these things that we want other people to know so that we can get the social capital from them, the social clout, without directly doing that. And so what this person is doing is setting up the most basic question in Jewish culture. Any Jew, male or female, even slave or free, if you've been part of the Jewish que- uh, nation, this is the first question that you get asked and that you get drilled on from pre-primary to primary to high school. And the answer Jesus gives. And so his address to Jesus is, oh, good teacher. So already flattering Jesus. And Jesus just answers him, but he turns it around. And he says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God. This is already taking the wind out of this guy's sails. Because he's, he was hoping that in his answer, Jesus would call him good. But Jesus then does answer and tells him, well, you know the answer. It is those who obey the law of Moses. Do not steal, do not murder, do not lie. Honor your mother and father. Love your neighbor. This is what you should do. But Jesus isn't following up. He's not taking the bait. So this this man isn't satisfied yet. And so he says, all of these I've done. Aren't you impressed, Jesus? What else am I lacking? Hoping that Jesus would answer nothing. Yo, I'm impressed, my guy. You're, you're pretty good. Wow. Getting the recognition from Jesus because Jesus was a big deal in that day so that he can also raise his social clout. But this isn't what Jesus answers. What Jesus does is he entreats him further and says, if you want to be perfect, go and sell your possessions and follow me. Jesus goes straight after the heart. Verse 22, and when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great many possessions. And the disciples And Jesus said to the disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Remember the kids already? To them belong the kingdom of heaven. Verse 24, Again I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. When the disciples heard this, and they thought this guy had mega clout, they just allowed him to go and chat with Jesus. They were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? If this guy that seemed perfect, we vetted him at the door. The bouncer, Peter, was there. He was like, what does your life look like? And the guy's like, this is me. This is my money. This is what I'm doing. I'm a pious Jew. You're the perfect one. You're the one that we want to associate with. Can we already give you the brand Christian and our church brand and put it on your bribery and you can go? And he was turned away. They must be with their hands in their hair. Who then can be saved? And Jesus says, with man this is impossible. But with God... 
all things are possible. And so two encounters that should illustrate to us how we should encounter Jesus to enter into the kingdom of God. The disciples and their assessment of who can enter into the kingdom of God was about the rich social standing that you enjoy, the outside things that you can give, that you can present to God, the gifts that you can bring to God to appease this God, to allow you into the, the kingdom of heaven. But Jesus throws in his last stinger. If they weren't perplexed enough, Jesus actually tells them, not only is it difficult to enter the kingdom of God, with man, it is impossible. It is impossible to be saved. This is such, a, such an important line within Christianity that we sometimes gloss over. That, that we sometimes invite people almost too quickly into the good news and saying, come and be saved, without pausing a bit and recognizing that with man it is impossible to be saved. And it's because of this misunderstanding that so many Christians struggle with heartache and dissatisfaction and a warped view of God because we haven't grasped the simple fact that with man it is impossible to be saved. There is nothing that you can ever bring. There's nothing that you can ever do. There's no life that you can ever live that will be faithful enough <coughs> so that you are invited inside to come and say, come and view Emmanuel. Come, you faithful enough to come and view God. We are not the triumphant. Who then can come? Only one. With God, this is possible. Jesus, God incarnate, this is why the birth of Christ is so special. Not only is it Jesus that is birthed, but it is God that became incarnate. That lived the life that we never could, impossible. Paid the price that we never could and was raised from the death. It's only those who, like Jesus, realize that they have nothing that they can give God to earn entry into the kingdom of God. Like little children, we have nothing to add to society of God. Like little children, on the social ladder of God's kingdom, we should recognize that actually we have no clout. We have nothing that we can bring. We simply come because he invited us. There's nothing in which we can stand, no platform that we can build good enough that somehow gets us closer to the door than the people around us. No. As a group, we are actually discarded outside. In fact, those that still think that they can add something, that they are maybe just a little bit more deserving of grace, a little bit more valuable than the addict on the street deserving of God's grace, that they're not, these people that think that they can add something, they're not just muddying the water of the gospel, they're actually putting hindrances in front of themselves. People think that if I'm somehow better than the person of the street, you know, I'm okay and this is the thing that I'm struggling with. It's not just 
a problem, you are putting stumbling blocks in front of yourself to actually accept and receive the gospel of, of Christ. It's that serious. It's a hindrance to your salvation. These people are moving further away from the kingdom of God. And the problem is most of us are still in that category. We never move away from this. We never move away from the place where we want to feel valued, where we actually want to feel validated, where we actually want to feel important. And so suddenly, even though you might have started with the gospel, realized that you were saved by grace, what we sometimes then do is then we interject with our own law of righteousness, with our own social standing and saying, okay, I've been saved by grace, but I still want to feel good about myself. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to come to God and I'm going to do all these things and I'm going to tell him what I'm going to do. And I'm going to be this good and faithful servant. He's going to tell it to me and I'm going to feel good about myself. Okay, but I can't address God directly. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to do this in my social and spiritual and religious life. I'm going to do it at church. I'm going to do it with my friends. I'm going to do it with my family so that I can at least get the recognition from them. They can look at your life and say, what a good person, a good Christian you are. Yes, I'm saved by grace, but now I'm also just feeding into my own ego and somehow just being validated outside of the gospel of grace. And unfortunately, what happens is that this is the exact opposite to the message of grace. Grace shows the magnificence of Jesus and that we could not save ourselves. Grace shows that God did what was impossible. And so how do we come to Jesus? We look at the example of how the king entered into this world. Baby in a manger that didn't even have room at the inn. Humbly. Likewise, we all should leave all notions of worth at the door when we come to Christ as a baby, knowing that we have nothing to give, but that he has everything to offer. Disarming as this might be, because it stops me from my own power and dignity, this is the best possible news. It means that when you come to the space of being broken, of feeling unfaithful, feeling like a failure. You're in this clear hate space where for the first time you can see grace for what it is and that it's for you. And so then we sing, oh, come all you faithful, differently. And we're going to sing it after the service. Oh, come all you unfaithful. Come weak and unstable. Come Know that you are not alone. Come, O barren and waiting ones, weary of praying. Come, see what your God has done. Christ is born, Christ is born for you. O come, bitter and broken. Come with fears unspoken. Come, taste his perfect love. O come, guilty and hiding ones. There is no need to run. See what your God has done. This is for all of the Christians that feel like they've dropped the ball. This is for those that are outside of the room, that feel that they don't, they're not worthy inside. These are for you parents that feel like you're not getting it right. You husbands and wives that feel like you're not honoring. You addicts 
you unfaithful workers, you fearful singles, come and receive the grace and love of God. Receiving it like children, remembering and helping that we are like old addicts trying to get the high of feeling important again, feeling wanted and needed. And so this can't be a one-time thing. The beholding of Christ should be a daily thing because like an old addict, even though we know that the poison is bad for us, we sometimes do crawl back to get the high of wanting to stand on my own achievements. If, if you're unfamiliar, if you're not sure whether you're an addict as well, look at the fruit of your life. Grace recognizes that it's not from me, and if it's from God, what a great and joyous thing that is, and joy is produced in my life. And so if there's a lack of joy, there might be a lack of grace. If I receive grace for myself, I naturally extend it to grace to the people around me. So if you feel ungracious to those around you, the trick is not trying to be more gracious. It is receiving more grace. Peace, free of an anxiety, is living a life knowing that I don't need to be perform or perform to be accepted, but as I am, I can enter to him. Shame comes from a place where I don't recognize the grace. And so look at the fruit of your life and don't try to fix the fruit. Don't guide, we, we've said this before, but don't go to Willie's and buy some avos and try to staple it to the tree. It's not going to work. We need to uproot that tree and replant the tree of grace. This is Paul. These are Paul's words to the, to the church in Galatia. He tells them, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you? Who has put a spell on you? <coughs> you who began in the gospel now and the law of the Spirit, do you now want to end it in the law of works? And Red Door Christmas is once again an invitation for all of us to recognize. Come, all you unfaithful, you who might have started in the gospel and have drifted, come back to the real good news and recognize this is why Jesus is joy to the world. It's exactly because we could not do what he has done. Once we realize that we are truly free, Truly saved by grace, that is the, the powerhouse that produces change in our life. By grace alone. Family, I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to transition into communion. Like a real, literal small family that we have right now. And, and one of the things that I want us to see in the symbolism of communion this morning is especially the brokenness of the bread and the juice that resembles Jesus' blood. Jesus, being perfect, became broken on the cross, resembling our brokenness today. So that on the cross, that is the great exchange. His perfection is now swapped with our brokenness. And so even as you, as you use the elements of the communion, as you drink the juice, you remember that his blood was flowed to seal the new covenant. As you eat the bread, you remember that his body was physically broken 
so that ours and our broken bodies can be slowly healed by his grace. Remember, this is good news. This is not a meal to be taken lightly. We always say this. However, more than ever this morning, if you feel unworthy to come to the table, this is then for you. The only reason why you would skip this table if you think that his grace is not enough and that you don't want to accept it, then I would say do not use communion this morning. But if there is a shred of belief, even in your unbelief, thinking that Christ is real, that he has paid for your sin, this is for you. More than for anyone else this morning. Even up until five minutes ago, you were completely hostile in your thoughts and sinful in your ways, rebelling against God. Do not buy into the lie of go and be faithful first before you can come to the table. No. Christmas is the celebration for all of us unfaithful, broken, and weary. Amen. Father, that is our prayer, that as we use physical elements, that something spiritual would happen on our hearts, on our minds, on our lives. We do want to be more faithful. We do want to be, live godly lives. But Father, help us in our addictive ways that we don't want to do it so that we feel more validated and important and like we're bringing something, something to the table, but rather as a response of being renewed by your grace in the gospel. Daily, I feel like I'm failing at this. Hourly, I feel like I'm turning not just away from you, but turning to my own ways in which I think that I can make myself more desirable for you. And yet, this is the good news, that I'm not, that I'm worse than I think I am, but that you have come for people such like myself, the chief of all sinners, to bring us back to you. What a joyous thing that you have done. What joy to the world and peace to mankind that our King has come, that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. We love you. We praise you. Amen.